Okay, so by now you're probably beginning to see about where you are spiritually and as I said we'll take some time later to break you into groups to pray for each other in the areas that are being revealed as I've been talking. So those guys, you know, you know who you are, Alice and Gina, Grace and Mary, the prophetic guys, start asking the Lord now, um, if you will, uh, about anything so that you're beginning to hear and sharpen your ears for the others. If you've got problems yourself, then I suggest that you get prayed for first in the group and then you can go on to monitor what's going on with the other people. I can't count. So could someone count for me how many we've got and then divide it in? I think it's about, I think there's enough to break us into later on groups of six, but I'm not sure because we've got actually one, two, three, four, five ladies that will sort of sit with one with each group. So see if my math, ma I meant to bring a calculator with me. I'm not bad, I can't do it. So just taking a sort of a sideways step for a minute. I want to look at the origin of the conflict because we have to base and earth these things in the scriptures. So Satan was created before God created the world. We know that. He came into the garden already fallen. And when he was created, he was absolutely perfect. Originally, his name was Lucifer, literally the shining one. He was most brilliant and beautiful. And Ezekiel 28, 11-13 describes him. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And that's the start of his funeral dirge. Because he was so beautiful, he was led away by himself. He was the most magnificent and beautiful creature that God had ever created, and he headed up the angelic realm. He was the highest of the created angels. Like all angelic creatures and mankind itself, he gave, God gave him free will. As a job function, there's some evidence to suggest that he was rather like Jesus' right-hand man in that he personally waited on Jesus in the throne room of God. And we know too that he headed up the worship and the music, which is why he has such a vested interest in the music in the world. All was well until he began to consider his own beauty and magnificence above the beauty and magnificence of the Lord himself. He became like Narcissus, do you remember him? He began to draw away. His focus changed from Jesus to himself and he quickly became consumed by himself. And one of the results from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was in the centre of the garden, is that we become self-absorbed, just like our adversary. There's a lesson here in this for all of us. Jesus must be kept as our first love. Remember the criticism in Revelation 2.5 was that the church had left, not lost, her first love. She walked away. And Jesus tells them, repent, change your mind. Because as soon as you lose focus, you lose him as the object of your affections. We find we don't love him as much as we should or did. And we find self rearing its ugly head. Then the cares of the world take over and get out of proportion in our lives. And the result is we turn away from God, lose our focus, our purpose, and our destiny. We have been had. This is exactly what happened to Lucifer. 
pride started rising in his heart as though he were responsible for his own beauty and he began a revolt against God, taking one third of the angels with him. That's Revelation 12.4. He probably went on something like a canvassing campaign, door knocking, to see who he could get on his side before he actually moved out against God. And that moving out we see in Isaiah 14, 13, the classic passage of the five I wills. Can you imagine the shock waves that must have gone through heaven when he rose up to try to establish his own claim to supremacy against the creator of the universe? Everyone must have held their breath, waiting to see what Almighty God was going to do about this upstart. This substitution of God's will for his own is the origin, origin of our legacy in the fall and the resultant conflict that we have between the will of God for us and our own will. When Satan substituted his own will for God's, he started something that will continue until Jesus comes and the final judgment. Our inherent inability to submit to an authority greater than ourselves. Did God really say so I know this may seem a little bit off, but I want to just trace the satanic strategy. A little bit about his attempt to stop the line through which Jesus came. Knowing from the beginning that he will bruise your head, Genesis 3.15, and that sentence had been passed on him, he still attempted to thwart God's eternal purposes and destroy the line through which the saviour of the world would come. There's always been an attack on the Jewish people from the beginning. The reason for this is, if Satan can destroy the Jews, he can make God out a liar. Because there are numerous promises regarding the Jewish people yet to be fulfilled. And if he can stop their fulfilment, he's made God a liar. The first thing I've actually had to start with uh, in the Revelation study is the wrong doctrine that the church is now Israel called replacement theology and a lot of quite big denominations or movements believe this and I've just got to prick that bubble because the church is the church and Israel is Israel and we have two different peoples with two totally different destinies so when we look at the book of the Revelation which we will do we'll see the demonic strategy to wipe the nation of Israel from off the map. And I've got news for the enemy, it'll never happen. They are God's people. He's still for them, in spite of their apostasy and current revolt against their Messiah, they will be his people, it is written. As Christians, we are the only ones who can see the true spiritual conflict that's being worked out on the earth. The picture in Revelation 12 is of the battle against the Jewish nation, what we call anti-Semitism. The feeling against this people group is not natural. There has never been a time since there has been a nation of Israel that someone somewhere hasn't been against them. It's just not natural. And Revelation 12, 1-4, which is the woman clothed with the sun and the woman having the birth of the baby, shows what's behind the attack. The devil is waiting to devour the man-child and Jesus is that man-child and he failed. 
So going back to Genesis 37, 9 to 10, you have a picture of the Jewish nation. You see the Bible is its own commentary. This is so easy to unpick. In Revelation we see the Jewish nation pregnant. It's always seen as pregnant because it was from that nation that Messiah was to come. It's a spiritual picture of what's behind all the attacks on the Jewish people for 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus. The nation of Israel was waiting for the birth of Messiah, but so was Satan. And that's why before the time of Jesus, the attacks made against the Jews, and specifically the line of the tribe of Judah, were to stop Jesus from coming. And those of you who know your Bibles, that uh, with Queen Athaliah, he got within one young boy, who was about 18 months old, of killing out the line that Jesus was to come through. Very interesting. So at the incarnation in Matthew 2, 13 to 18, we see the other side of the nativity story. This is the attack Satan used to try to kill the young child Jesus. Using as a willing tool King Herod, he incites the king to kill all the male children under two, and you don't hear too much of this at Christmas. Yet another failed attempt to destroy the Messiah, and of course the final one was when he managed to have Jesus murdered. But all unknowing that he was just fulfilling God's eternal plan. I bet he was spitten. He must have been one unhappy demon when he found out what had actually happened. Roger Price, I think, tells the story. He says, it's two days on and we've got him, we've got him, we've got him. There's rejoicing going on in Satan's throne room, you know. We've got him, we've done it, we've got him. And then suddenly someone says, he's risen. He's what? <laughs> what do you mean? He's risen. So why does he keep attacking the Jews today? Because he knows there are still prophecies to be fulfilled and if he can wipe them out, these won't happen. Some people just never learn. Make no mistake, God uses Satan for his divine purposes. He can do nothing except God allows. And if you want proof of that, go to Job chapter 1 and see who's doing what to whom. Have you considered my servant Job? I don't think I'd like to be picked out like that, would you? Have you thought about that one down there, have Faithful in all his ways, uh, skin for skin, he says. This does not mean that the battle for us isn't very real. We are up against a malevolent enemy who hates us with a passion. If you have ever looked into the eyes of a demonic entity, they are absolutely cold. There is no feeling that I can see it now. Head rotated round and looked at me. And then I said something and he said, you can't do that. I said, too late. I've done it. It's amazing in its, there is no feeling at all. It's absolutely like looking a razor blade in the eye. Master. So we have got to be wise as serpents and harmless as doves and we have got to hate the enemy with the same passion that he hates us. So the four faces of a Christian, this is an interesting thought. In Ezekiel 1, 5, 6 and 10, we've got a visit to the throne room of God. And Ezekiel sees things he can't describe as he's caught up 
into the third heaven. And he says, and in the fire was what looked like four living creatures. You notice he's always saying it looked like, because he can't really describe it, but it looked like this. In appearance, their form was that of a man, but each of them had four faces and four wings, and their faces looked like this. Each of the four had the face of a man, and on the right side, each had the face of a lion, on the left side, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. Now, I just want to look briefly at these and angels with four faces because every one of us should be like this. We should have the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. The problem is that many of us only have one face, and that's the face of a man. The face of a man is a practical face, but it isn't a spiritual face. This is a person who's always ready to help in any situation. Brilliant. Love them. Thank you for them. But there's more. The face of the lion is the Christian who knows about spiritual warfare. That sees a demon under every brick. Every situation, the devil did this and the devil did that and the, and the devil did the other thing. You never hear anything else other than it's the devil's work. Now I've heard Bob Mumford say, this lady, she came up to me and oh, Mr. Mumford, the devil's doing this and the devil's doing this and the devil's doing the other. And he said very lovingly to her, honey, there is not enough light in you to attract a used demon. <laughs> like I said earlier on, you've got to be bright enough to attract him. Most churches are not good enough to actually attract God. God, <laughs> not good enough to attract God either. They're not good enough to attract the devil. They are. They're doing the job fine. You don't need to go in there. Causing enough hours. Would you sit there, Father? Or not? Sorry about that. So it is true, you see. We do the devil's work for him by biting and devouring one another. Usually our fallen nature is quite enough and he can walk off and deal with something a bit bigger. So the face of an ox is the Christian who gets on with the job without making any fuss. They're always steadfast in the body, but again, there's no spiritual understanding. The face of an eagle are the ones who speak about faith all the time. Everything has to be faith. I'm believing for this, I'm believing for that. I'm in faith for this, I'm in faith for that. I don't know what that means. There's been a lot of things lately that I've thought, what does that mean? We've got our own language, haven't we? They're likely to be triumphalistic. They never have any problems, neither do they have much reality. Because they're what I would call the name it, claim it, or blab it and grab it, as I've heard it called the game. I just love it. So there are the four faces of a Christian. And we should be a mix of all four. We should really be heavenly minded enough to be some earthly good. Placing our feet both in the heavenly realms and on the earth, bringing the blessings down. But to do that effectively, we have to regain our own inner territory. One of the laws of spiritual warfare is that you cannot take ground from the enemy if he has got ground in you. You cannot cast out a spirit of Jezebel if you've got one yourself. <laughs> you can't do it. Because all they'll do is hold hands with one another. I mean, you can't do it. So, <laughs> what does the ground that he has in us look like? 
Again, you see what I'm helping you to do is to identify at ground level what these things look like. Romans 8, 5 and following speaks of the mind of the flesh and the mind of the spirit. The mind of the flesh is at war with God. It's not just sort of on so-so terms. It's at war with the spirit of God. And it cannot be compatible with the spirit of God because it's hostile. And here we come. It won't subject itself to God. It won't submit itself to God. And that is the ground we have to take back from the enemy, the mind of the flesh. You have to transport that thinking into the realm of the spirit and live from there. Galatians 5:16 and following lists the fruit of the spirit. And Paul says, walk by the spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So there's a message in those two scriptures living in the spirit, not in the flesh. Because James 4, 7 says, Submit to God, therefore, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. And it seems that most of us are actually schizophrenic. We've got two things living on the inside of us, the old and the new nature. And anyone that, like myself who's been in the counselling and pastoral ministry will tell you that they spend most of their time dealing with people who don't know who they really are in Christ. And they certainly don't know where to live. And half the time you can't get them to make the choices anyway, even if they do know. Because it's the will. They will not make those will choices because the cost of, is involved. They've got to rule their own spirit and that is something they don't like to do. Ungoverned desires is what they've got running rampant. So we're caught up in this internal battle between the flesh and the spirit. And this is where the conflict is and this is where we need to learn how to regain our own inner territory to live from the inside out to live from our spirit man not our emotions never ever 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 engage the enemy before you have engaged with God if you attack first without battle orders you are going to lose guaranteed first submit to God he wants to give you a revelation of about how to stand, what to do, what to say, and how to say it, so that you enjoy the warfare that's around you, not just endure it. And you get to see the power and the majesty of God. It's necessary that we understand our situations from God's perspective to understand his ways, how he thinks, how that he allows in his wisdom what he could easily prevent by his power. I've had someone say to me recently, God's angry about that, you know, I know he's angry about that, and I said, no, he's not. And they looked at me cockled. I said, what you're doing there is printing over on God's perspective of the situation how you feel, because you're angry. He's never angry. He's in control. He's not angry about anything. Because he knows what we're like. He knows everything that's going on. And he's far more likely to be actually looking at their attitude than at the person who's so-called offended so much. There's a lot of it going on at the moment, but it was quite... When I said to them, well, you know, bless those who curse you and pray for those who despitefully use you. Yeah, but 
but these are Christians. I said, it's written to Christians. It's not written to the bloke out there. I've got to go. Okay. <laughs> I think that was target. In warfare, we get a fresh understanding of how God thinks. His perspective on the situation. And it's knowing that perspective that leads to a repositioning which affects everything we do. Perspective affects position and position affects petition. How we position ourselves before God will affect what we petition for, what we ask for, what we pray. We need his perspective in order to hear from him what we should be asking in any given situation. So we have to learn to bring ourselves to peace. Father, how do you see this situation? I'm feeling like this, but what do you see here? How do I align myself with you? How do I pray? Number one. Otherwise, what you do is you go off half-cocked in your own estimation of what's actually going on. And you're in your carnality, actually. You're not in the spirit at all. This takes some working out. We're all working it out. Because God will make sure there are situations that get your mercury to rise, if I can use it like that. <laughs> Things are never, ever the way they look to our natural eye. We must have God's wisdom and perspective on everything. People come to me and they say, this has happened and this, this one said, that and that one said, that and this is happening and that's going on. I say, what's God saying? This one said that, that one said the other one. You don't seem to be able to hear what I'm saying to you. He said this to me and I said that and that's other things. I don't want to know in a very nicest way what's going on on ground level. I want to know what God's saying. So I irritate the daylights out of people. Have you prayed about it? If you say that again, I'll let you. Yeah. Well, get used to it because I say it all the time. I mean, you had an example of it before we started. Let's pray. Let's find out what God wants to do. Is it all right for June to come over here and do this? May, it may seem legalistic to you, but it's absolute freedom. Because then you can go forward knowing that you're absolutely doing what he wants to do. You have all the protection. you know there are huge angels in here this morning? I saw them. They're standing there with these huge swords, just standing with their hands, looking around. It's worth it. So don't move in the other P word, which is panic. <laughs> We're talking about perspective, position and petition and there's another couple of P words, the one is panic. Bring yourself to peace, push fear away, then use the other P word, pray. And if you're really getting to be a bit mature, worship first. Things have happened to me recently where I've uh, gone, <laughs> or not to put too fine a point on it. <laughs> and I sat down and I thought, now, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. What do I teach? Worship. Okay, Father, I'm just going to worship you. And I start declaring out his goodness and his greatness and his majesty and his supremacy and my confidence in him. And then I've forgotten what it was that got me going in the first place. Wonderful. And then I can hear him, because my mind is not full of my opinions and it is absolutely imperative that we learn to hear the voice of God for ourselves 
1 John 5.14 says, Now this is the confidence we have. If we ask anything according to his will, we know that we have what we ask. It's so imperative to find out the mind of the Lord and then pray accordingly. Therein lies our confidence. We're not fighting, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.26, as one beating the air. God has given us everything we need for this battle and he's given us his Holy Spirit, who's our personal trainer, available 24-7, just a prayer away, and it's just a discipline like anything else. But the biggest thing is trying to hold ourselves back. You know, I used to tell the story, when I was a young Christian, God would say something to me, and I'd have this, what he'd said to me, in my mouth like a dog with a bone, and I'd go galloping off, I've got it, I've got it, I've got it, and I'd suddenly find I'm... <laughs> got it, got it? Out in the wilderness with this thing, not knowing what I'm supposed to be doing with it, so I'd got back drop it at his feet and say, what did you say? Well, you didn't wait for me to tell you. Okay. That happened several times. And then it stopped. I'm not going anywhere until you tell me. Okay, you've given me some information. What do you want me to do with it? I'm putting mind of Graham Cook. A lot of you have heard this story, but it is so pertinent. He said there was a guy in the fellowship that they had this love-hate relationship. He hated to love him and the other guy loved to hate him. So they've got this love-hate relationship. And he found out something about this man. Right. He's gone down there, isn't he? To tell him what he found out. Marching along there to go and knock on his door. And God said, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to go and tell him. Take another step, you're a dead man. Go home and fast till I tell you to stop. So Graham went home and he started to fast. Thirty days later, the Lord said to him, now you go around there and see him. He said, Father, I can't. It will break him up. I can't do that. In that thirty days, God's dealt with his heart. I can't do it to him. Three more days goes on this argument. So then he finally goes around, knocks on the door. Doesn't know what he's going to say. Man opens the door, bursts into tears. Oh, thank God you've come. I've been praying for the last 30 days. I've done a terrible thing and I need to tell someone. See, if he'd gone in his own idea of what he'd found out, God gives us information and he gives it to us, you know, to test us what we're going to do with it. You might know right now something that God has shown you about someone. That is not so that you might think, they are. Oh, I told you so, I knew that. I knew they were like and God's saying, mm. I can see what's going on in your nasty little mind. So we're going to deal with that, aren't we? So when we get something, Father, how do you want me to deal with this? It's part of our maturing. He will trust us with things. And it's how we deal with it when he gives it to us that will take us up onto the next level. And you can't hide it from him. You can't try to pretend that you're all got that halo sitting there, tad, um, lopsided, you know. Just talk to him about how it makes you feel. For goodness sake, tell him. Don't get annoyed and think, I've got to swallow this. I'm not supposed to feel like this. 
That is the time when you go to him and you say, Lord, that's absolutely making me spitting mad. So you tell him and you talk it through with him so that that anger does not go onto the other person. That's how we deal with our wayward emotions. We all have them. We wouldn't be normal or human if we didn't, but it's what we do with them that's the important thing. Don't sit on them, don't fester with them. Take them to him and discharge them and he will show you a better way. So, sidetrack. The purpose of demonic opposition is to teach us power and the purpose of human opposition is to teach us grace. Don't let's confuse the two. The purpose of tension and difficulty is to teach you how to rest, submit to God, find out his agenda for the circumstances you're in. There's a heavenly perspective on this and when you find that out, your head comes up and worship fills your heart. Train yourself not to push the panic button. Train yourself to turn to him first. Thank him, worship him, bless him, because he's with you. It's just a discipline. It's a different place to live. It's life in the spirit. Having said that, there are questions you need to ask when you come into circumstances and situations and when you come under attack. And we need to learn to ask questions. If we don't know what to ask, then ask the Holy Spirit what to ask. I don't know how to pray. What, what do I ask here? We often come into that situation. I don't know how to pray. I don't even know what to ask. Please, will you show me? He loves it. So here are, are like a few vacuum-packed, pre-packed questions. And question number one. Am I reaping what I've already sown here? Don't be too quick to blame the enemy because quite often it's this. The spirit against you may be God himself. God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. So check it out. Whatever you're going through right now might have a history in something you've actually done. For example, are you being criticised now? If you are, the question you need to ask yourself is have I been critical in the past and not repented or made restoration or reparation? If the answer to this is yes, then it's likely that you're reaping what you've sown and you're not actually under attack at all. The criticism you're getting is from the seed that you sowed. It's not a nice thing to have to hear, but if you carry on, you're just being silly, not to own up and sort it. If this isn't your problem, but there's something else you're reaping right now, ask the Lord to show you what it is and then take steps to put it right before you leave here today. So if you get through that one, Question number two is, is this the cross at work? Are you nailing something in my life? Are you killing this carnality? God and the devil both have the same agenda, you know. They want to kill you. The devil wants to kill, steal and destroy, and God wants to kill your flesh, and he's not apologising for that. You cannot crucify the devil and bind the cross. You can only embrace the cross. So is God using the enemy to crucify something in my life that shouldn't be there? Is God developing the fruit of the Spirit in my life through situations, circumstances and people? Tension doesn't always mean there's something wrong. It means something's happening. If I want to move my arm, there has to be a degree of tension taking place or it just hang there because it just needs the tension to make it move. Bad situations are opportunities to be gracious. 
I don't have to be gracious when I get on well with someone. It's when there's tension in the relationship I need to be gracious and grow fruit. So God will allow tensions and difficulties around our lives because he wants to teach us to live in the fruit of the Spirit, which is the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of our carnal nature. It's the fruit of his Spirit. So that's why the difficulties are there. Responding in the same Spirit that's coming against you uh, may be very gratifying for a moment, but that's why James says there's wars and fightings amongst us. Sometime we have to realise what this is all about and start making mid-course corrections to our own behaviour and thinking patterns. And don't forget, this is spiritual warfare. These are areas where the enemy can get in. Long-term resentment, bitterness, unforgiveness can make place for the enemy physically, mentally and emotionally. For example, someone says something really unkind to you and you want to say, I know something about you too, darling, you know, you want to give them a bit. But you have the opportunity at that point to respond in the opposite way to what's coming at you. You can choose to respond with the fruit of kindness instead of retaliation. You can go flesh to flesh, you can give people back what they give you, but you're only stunting your own growth, destroying relationships and making it easy for the enemy to have yet another victory over you. And lunch is served and you are on the menu again. It's a hollow victory to retaliate and feel pleased with your use of the English language. Believe me, I used to do it when I was an unbeliever. I was, oh, well, I suppose I've got to admit it, haven't I? Proud of the way I could wipe someone with a few words. That just completely changed, praise God, when I became a Christian. All you've done in, in that case is to emphasise your own carnality and as far as God's concerned you'll have to go around that one again until you learn it's you he wants to deal with, not the other fella. The fruit of the Spirit only grows in bad soil. In bad situations where you have the choice to be gracious or ungracious, it's entirely up to you and it can go on as long as you like. You are the one who determines how quickly you grow, not God. Your intransigence means it will take longer. You get to choose. You can be kind and merciful to them. Good fruit, bad fruit, you get to choose every single time. And God will make sure you have plenty of opportunities. You are the architect of your own spirituality, no one else. So God tests us on everything. Did you know that? The good news is that you can't fail any of the tests. Just as you think, I've got that one licked. I used to hear people say, I've got love licked. Now I'm working on joy. I thought, let's just wait for the test to come. <laughs> he finds out, he tests you because he knows to see if you have really got the victory in that area or not. He does a work in you and then he tests it. But if you don't realise that's what's happening, he has to engineer the same circumstances again and you get to take it again and again and again and again and again and again, as Graham would say, until you pass. That's kind. He won't let you go up a level until you're ready. That is the kindness of God. He's always developing something in us. He's always wanting to teach us about grace. And he does that through the people around us. So stop trying to run away from them. They're there to grow a particular fruit of the Spirit in you. Now I want to ask you with your little pieces of paper uh, to, to make three columns 
One, two, three. And we'll break here. So we can have some lunch. The top of the first column, name your premium grace growers. You'll know who they are. The top of the second column, what is it about them that gets right up your left nostril? <laughs> that absolutely puts that button they've got your that straight away your kids don't they know how to push your buttons. And the third column is what is God trying to teach you? What fruit of the spirit is he wanting to establish in your life? So while you're having your lunch break. Father, I ask you that you would show us who are our current grace growers and what you're trying to do in us through them so that we can align ourselves with you and cooperate with you and grow, Father, in Jesus' name. So thank you for listening. When we come back, we'll start at two um, with group with the groups, so that the stuff that you've actually got written on your little pads, have a think about that which you want to share with someone else and have prayer in the group for. So we'll we'll spend the first mm-hmm, half an hour or so this afternoon getting you in those groups and. Um, praying through your stuff. Thank you. God bless you. Have a good lunch.